Robin of Sherwood was the brainchild of writer Richard Carpenter, following on from his highly successful work on Catweasel, Smuggler, Adventurer and his revisionist take on Dick Turpin. Carpenter started his professional career as an actor before moving into writing in 1970. His CV is a long list of high-quality, family-friendly, high-adventure series, normally with a heavily researched historical background to ground the fantasy and reality. Catweasel, a highly successful ITV show about a 13th century wizard who falls through time to the then-present day, was his first big hit, and Catweasel's phrases such as electricery and telling bone fell into the popular vernacular. Carpenter followed this with The Ghosts of Motley Hall, a 1976 series about five ghosts, which was essentially updated by the Horrible Histories writers this year for the BBC comedy Ghosts. In addition, he worked on The Adventures of Black Beauty and Enid Blyton's Famous Five. All of these shows were staples of the ITV schedules into the late 70s and early 80s, with every single one of them surviving in reruns for far longer than their initial television runs. For Dick Turpin in 1979, Carpenter gave longtime sitcom star Richard O'Sullivan from Man About the House, better known to American listeners as the inspiration for Three's Company, a rare dramatic role in this 18th century set drama. In 1981, he created Smuggler, starring Oliver Tobias as the titular character, real name Jack Vincent. Smuggler and its New Zealand set sequel Adventurer, which aired six years later in 1987, boasted high production values for the time slot. In fact, all of Carpenter's series have an air of quality to them. Each was shot on film, normally completely on location, and, mostly being period dramas, they had little to date them, meaning they had a long shelf life. However, these weren't the boring period dramas the BBC used to adapt. No corsets and powdered wigs here. Carpenter's series were full-blooded, high-action, boys-owned drama shows with plenty of during do. Kids, and many adults of the era, lapped them up. All of this, of course, was warming up to the main event. A lavishly produced prime-time adaptation of Robin of the Hood. Carpenter and his production partner Paul Knight approached HTV and Goldcrest Films with the idea, but this wouldn't be a light, fluffy adaptation like the Richard Green series of the 50s, and Robin and Co. would never wear green tights. Carpenter had done serious research into the topic, and the period, circa 1180 to 1211 BC. The series would treat its topic seriously, and the outlaws all given believable and identifiable motivations. In many ways, Robin of Sherwood was the first revisionist retelling of a legend, long before Batman Begins or Casino Royale. As with the later series, Spartacus, Robin Hood has been the subject to many different legends over the years, and the series cannily focused on one specific one, the idea that the hooded man was Robin of Loxley, whose village was burned down when he was but five years of age, but he was spirited away by his father, Alric, guardian of the arrow, ancient symbol of pre-Christian England. Elric led a rebellion against his Anglo-Norman masters, and as such is murdered by Norman pillagers. But before his brutal death, he manages to spirit Robin away to live with the miller in a nearby village. 
Fifteen years later, Robin is chosen by Hearn the Hunter to be the hooded man of legend. Bequeathed with the magic sword, Albion, and the might to make things right for the poor, the dispossessed, Robin takes up arms against the corrupt sheriff of Nottingham with his band of not-so-merry outlaws. Cast in the key role of Robin was newcomer Michael Parade. Parade was then only 23 years old, and Carpenter deliberately cast young actors in the series, believing rebellions needed to be the purview of the young who look at the corruption of their elders with disgust. It's hard not to see this 1980s version of Robin Hood as a commentary on the money-grabbing materialism of the era. Greed is, after all, good. And there is undoubted satisfaction in seeing Robin belittle, humiliate and generally taunt the establishment. Prade was excellent as Robin. Already a seasoned theatre actor, Prade gifted the character with movie star good looks and athleticism, performing many of his own stunts and giving the role his all. But this is a more pensive and thoughtful Robin. He doesn't blunder into situations blindly. He plans his attacks carefully, using his knowledge of Sherwood to his advantage and setting up many of his attacks in advance, allowing him to appear and disappear into the forest like a supernatural creature. His loyalty to the people of Sherwood, often mistreated by the sheriff and his lackey, Sir Guy of Gisborne, yields many rewards, including their willingness to hide him and his men when needed, in return for many of the spoils they steal from the sheriff's men. The sheriff, cannily played by Nicholas Grace, and Sir Guy, played with a permanent schoolboy sneer by Robert Addy, were noteworthy foils. Robin says early on that they shouldn't kill Gisborne, much to his men's dismay, as humiliating him is a far better tactic. Besides, if they kill him, the sheriff may get someone competent. The sheriff, Robert de Renault in this version, although he is frequently unnamed in the original ballads, is compelled to keep Gisborne due to family loyalty, but is canny enough to know when to treat the serfs with kid gloves and when to make an example of them, whereas Gisborne leaps directly to beheading people. It's to the show's credit that even though Robin scores many victories, the sheriff frequently outthinks Robin, such as in the episode Alan and Dale, where Robin does indeed score a victory, reuniting the minstrel Alan with his lover, who was trapped in a forced marriage to the sheriff in a land deal. But the sheriff gains the bigger victory, keeping the dowry, which was what he wanted all along. The first episode, a feature-length opener called Robin Hood and the Sorcerer, basically works as Robin Begins featuring all the items we know from the Robin Hood legend. He robs from the rich, gives to the poor. The archery battle where Robin puts his arrow down the middle of his nearest competitors. The river battle on the tree trunk with Little John. But it makes it all seem fresh and new, even being watched now. I've been revisiting this series on Blu-ray, a Christmas present that I've just got around to watching, and been really impressed with it. The show really holds up from a visual point of view, with the lush location filming, the use of filters for the cinematography, and the performances, all giving the appearance of a motion picture rather than a Saturday evening family drama. Carpenter added lots of black magic, paganism, and sorcery to the backstory, giving the show a feeling of danger and menace. This danger and menace also contributed to some very dark backstories. Will Scarlet, played by Ray Winston, watched his wife be raped and then trampled to death by the sheriff's horses, making him a very angry and volatile young man. No longer wearing red, Willie Scarlet inside, and always calls upon Robin to kill his adversaries as quickly as possible. There's a lot of death in Robin of Sherwood, and the show has a lot to say about abuse of power. 
The witch of Elsdon has Gisborne condemn a woman to death for witchcraft for the crime of spurring his advances. Seven Poor Knights from Acre focuses on the Knights Templar, the most elite fighting force of the day. Sex also played a large part in the show. Robin and Marion's first meeting in her bedchambers has her positively gagging for this handsome, dark stranger who's just appeared in her room. And the subtle indications that the sheriff is gay are very well played. A character is even referred to as a catamite at one point, a word that clearly sailed over the censor's head. Little John even has a dalliance with a neighbouring girl who ponders just why he's called Little John. Judy Trott, then only 20 years of age, was a modern Marion and a capable warrior in her own right. She'd have to be, sharing a forest with seven men. In many ways, this was Carpenter reclaiming the Marion of the original ballads before Hollywood got hold of her and turned her into a stereotypical damsel in distress. Clive Mantle, now better known for 10 years on Casualty, but probably more famous around these parts for being the first failed nuclear man in the cutscenes from Superman 4, made a charming little John. Of course, all this bloodless gore and subtle storytelling attracted the attention of noted busybody Murray Whitehouse, self-appointed guardian of public morals in the 70s and 80s. Whitehouse attacked anything that offended her delicate sensibilities, despite having no real mandate to do so, and she attacked Robin of Sherwood for being anti-Christian, satanic, overly violent and a corrupter of the nation's morals. Fortunately, this not being a BBC show, Carpenter was under no obligation to listen to her. To be fair, the BBC didn't have to either, but being funded by the licence fee meant they had a certain obligation to audience complaints in a way that advertisement-led ITV didn't. Apparently, by way of introduction to Murray Whitehouse, Richard Carpenter opened with, I'm Richard Carpenter, I'm a professional writer, and you're a professional what exactly? As usual for Whitehouse, who I was forever irked at, even as a kid, for her many attempts to get Doctor Who watered down, she didn't actually seem to watch the show. Whilst being portrayed as a pagan, Robin had a lot of respect for people of the cloth, and Friar Tuck, played by Phil Rose, had a lot of tolerance for other religions, and deliberately represents the better side of Christianity. Whitehouse also didn't seem to care that the series was impeccably researched, and while some dates are changed for a dramatic licence, the majority of the show was historically accurate, right down to one Sheriff of Nottingham being specifically mentioned in the Magna Carta on a list of people to be stripped of all royal offices for his corruption. The location filming on the series was glorious, even if the weather frequently played merry hell with the production schedule. Abbotslee Woods in Bristol doubled for Sherwood Forest, and Alnwick Castle, Bamberg Castle, and Wells Cathedral, amongst many others, were used for interiors and exterior locations. In some cases, where the castles were in a state of disrepair, the producers set up extras as builders to make it look like the castles were, in fact, just being constructed. Another element that added greatly to Robin of Sherwood's success was its score by Irish band Clannad. The score adds to the proceedings no end, although it can become a tad repetitive at times. Here, for your delectation and delight, is the opening theme.
The first season of six episodes concluded with the King's Fool, and again used real historical events as a backdrop for the story. Richard the Lionheart, a scene-stealing John Rhys Davis, returns to England after being held hostage by the German Emperor Henry VI, and sets about locating this merry band of outlaws that have made such sport of the crown in his absence. However, he is set upon and rescued by Robin, and upon learning this is really King Richard, Richard pardons the merry men, all except Will Scarlet, who feels Richard is not to be trusted. Will turns out to be correct. After all, Richard may be the Lionheart, but he's also of the aristocracy, and therefore has little interest in the people of England, most of whom had to contribute a quarter of their annual salary to pay his ransom. Despite the pardon, Richard only wants Robin and his men to fight for him so he can retake Jerusalem. But Robin and his men quickly learn that a king's word isn't worth spit when he orders them killed. This is a fine closer to the season. It's a textured and layered story, with the audience kept guessing as to whose side Richard is on throughout, especially as in other interpretations of the legend, he's portrayed, normally in the final act of the story, as a benevolent and kindly figure, something that probably was quite far away from the truth. At first, it seems like that is going to be the case here. He's a canny fighter, not afraid to get his hands dirty, and his humiliation of the sheriff and Sir Guy is humorous. However, Richard the Lionheart liked one thing fighting, and he's quickly planning his next crusade that will once again take him away from England. In reality, Richard spent only six months of his ten-year reign actually in England, and it's Friar Tuck who points this out to Robin. Richard cares not for his kingdom, he needs money for his armies, and to do that, he'll lie and cheat with the best of them. Robin of Sherwood had little time for the people in power, showing them to completely venal and mostly cowardly at every turn. Richard isn't cowardly, but he is corrupt, and his manipulations hurt Robin, who seemingly wants to believe that not everyone in power is out for themselves. The final battle is quite exciting. With no CG, when Sir Guy is caught in a blaze at the end and is actually seen on fire, it really is actor Robert Addy. A remarkable thing to witness that they would in no way get away with today. Sadly, the ending is rushed. Sir Guy manages to critically wound Marion, and it takes the intervention of Hearn the Hunter to save her. And then the episode ends. It felt like it was missing a third act, whereby Robin and his men return to get vengeance on Richard for his betrayal. The problem of using real historical figures, I guess. We know how and when Richard will die, and it isn't at the hands of the hooded man in Sherwood Forest, but by a crossbow in France by a man named Pierre Basile. Robin of Sherwood was remarkably fun to revisit. Despite the occasional mullet and the odd character looking like a Timothée commercial, the series stands up remarkably well, with the historical aspects weaved into the stories organically and logically. Performances are pretty good across the board, with the young cast clearly having a ball, but the real nods go to Robert Addy and Nicholas Grace. Addy's Gisburn is a fop, an upper-class schoolboy bully that we would refer to today as entitlement personified. Always with a sneer on his lips, every time he's brought low is a fun moment. However, he does show a tender side. When Mildred is to be married to the sheriff against her will, Gisburn shows remarkable compassion to her. He, of all people, knows that the sheriff is cruel and petty, and his misogyny is well known by all. It's a remarkable moment of sympathy from a character who could have been horrendously one-note. 
Grace, by contrast, is marvellous as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Curvel to never let his performance fall over into caricature, Grace still manages to stay just the right side of over the top, portraying the Sheriff as an intelligent man who knows just how to get what he wants from his people, whilst making it look like they are benefiting from his generosity. Robin of Sherwood was well worth a revisit. The Blu-ray set has a number of extra features and the transfer, while not perfect, is better than broadcast TV will have looked at the time. As Robin of Sherwood seems mired in rights problems, the series doesn't get repeated as much as it deserves, so the Blu-ray complete collection is the way to go. I'm very much looking forward to revisiting Series 2. Further information on the show and the Robin Hood legend itself can be found at www.robinofsherwood.org and www.boldoutlaw.com. I'll take a quick break and be back with more. Monthly, monthly, monthly. It's Action Film Face-Off! Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrick, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Action Film Face-Off! Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face-Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets... Jason was a Navy SEAL! Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films. Some of them have Chuck Norris. Technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet. But it could happen, because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year. Our randomizer has spikes on it. We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our video dome arena. It also has spikes. It does not have spikes. <laughs> but we discuss the films and score them through six different rounds of criteria. I score Bond films very high. Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film face-off. Next episode, Jason fights a bear. <laughs> Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows. Pat Samson killed a man with a sword once. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. But you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade, or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off. Come see the blood fly! And that's Action Film Face-Off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see The Blood Fly. I just said that. Following on from last time, where I looked at the Stone Tablet saga in The Amazing Spider-Man, which was less a saga and more a loosely connected series of vignettes, comes Spider-Man Lifeline, a three-issue miniseries from writer Fabian Nietzsche and artist Steve Rude and Bob Wyasek. The series picked up the stone tablet storyline some 30-odd years later. In this wholly unnecessary sequel, Hammerhead is now after the stone tablet for reasons unknown, and he goes about it in roughly the same way, i.e. he recruits Kurt Connors to recreate the formula with predictable results. Lifeline was a fairly enjoyable self-contained series, picking up some loose ends from the original. 
Lewis Wilson went straight after the event of the original story and made a living from the tablet and assorted other items linked to it. Man Mountain Marco and Caesar Cesaro show up again, as does the lizard. Doctor Strange is also along for the ride, as the tablet has connections to ancient Atlantis or Lemuria or whatever. The biggest problem with Lifeline is the art. Not that it's bad. No, 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 it isn't by any means. But Rude is clearly in love with the 60s era of Spider-Man, and that's what he wants to draw. Sadly, this looks woefully out of place in the early naughty setting of this story. For whatever reason, this story was set in then-current continuity, so Spider-Man references not only the deaths of Ben, Gwen and George Stacy, but also the recent suspected death of Murray Jane, placing it purely in the misguided reboot era. Add to that, George Stacy's brother Arthur plays a major role, and there's no escaping that this is set in an era most would prefer to forget. Speaking of forgetting, subsequent creators paid no attention to this story, which sees Kurt Connors cured of being the lizard forever. Lifeline comes from a time when Marvel kicked out a lot of these rather superfluous Spider-Man miniseries, which I think were supposed to be part of the Web Spinners anthology, but that was cancelled before these could be run. Making the miniseries gave them importance that they otherwise wouldn't have had, but none of them were essential. Such it is with Lifeline. It's not a bad read. Nietzsche has a good handle on Spidey's dialogue and some of it is very funny. Although references to The Sopranos and The Matrix date it somewhat. There's also a decent attempt to give Hammerhead more shading as a character that works very nicely. However, the art makes it look dated. I know Rude was going for a 60s vibe and his covers are spectacular. But perhaps this should have been set in that era as well. Rude clearly wants to draw college era Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy and Murray Jane, so let him. Setting this story just before Amazing Spider-Man issue 118, or thereabouts, and featuring the core cast heavily could have improved it immeasurably, especially as Peter's personal life has very little to do with the story. If you see Lifeline on a Comixology sale or in the cheapy bins, it's worth a read, but it's not in any way essential. Okay, let us continue with our email section. Email grab mag is the first email tonight uh, from Nathaniel Wayne. Hey there, Andy. I've been binging through the episodes of your show I haven't heard, most of which were on topics that I don't have a ton of thoughts on. So I thought I'd crack off an email and touch on each of those in a small way. Joe 90. Not much to say about Jerry Anderson's stuff. I think I've noted before that I know him by reputation only, which is why I won't have anything to say on the subject of Stingray. I find it interesting that you have such a hatred of wearing glasses. I don't recall there being such specific teasing reference in the States. It was usually just broader stuff like nerd or four eyes because even without a cultural reference point, kids are still awful. I didn't get much of that because I didn't get glasses until high school, though in hindsight I probably needed them around seventh grade. I've never gone in for contacts, partly because the idea kind of weirds me out a bit and also because I actually think I look better with glasses. Amongst other things, it helps mask the dark spots I've got under my eyes, which I've always had. And I'm lucky that my prescription hasn't changed in years, so I've got a collection of varying frame styles now that I have a fair amount of fun with. Yeah, I, I just cannot stand wearing specs. Lots of people look good in specs. I'm not one of them. I have a very round head, so uh, specs just look silly on me. I also look like a rugby-playing thug a lot of the time, so specs just do not suit me. Also, they irritate me. I would much rather wear contact lenses. I have considered getting laser surgery at some point, if I can afford it. You know, maybe when my daughter stops leeching money off me. Nathaniel continues, Star Cops. This sounds like it had a really neat premise and vibe. 
Kind of a shame it didn't get the chance it might have deserved. God, that theme, though. I actually skipped ahead after a minute because, bleh. Yeah, it's funny I considered not playing the whole theme because, yeah, but, you know. Tie-in novels. This is an area of fandom I've just never gotten into, regardless of the property. I mean, in terms of things continuing an otherwise dormant franchise, I certainly didn't see the harm in it. But thanks to having grown up in the age of video store rentals and VHS tapes recording off the TV, I truly never saw the appeal of the novelisations, ditto comic book adaptations of films for that matter. I get now that part of their appeal pre-90s was that home video was expensive, and sometimes you just couldn't see a movie again, and this was the next best thing. Thanks to your show, it's helped me understand the appeal of the novelisation that can bypass any budget or performance issues the film show might have had. That said, they're still not for me, and I'll actually dispute your claim that the dying down of Star Wars novels isn't because of there nothing being anything to work with, and more likely that Disney is trying to control things so tightly so as to ensure that nothing in print preempts or contradicts the films that they're just not giving the writers the freedom they would have had before. I think taken off the leash, there's plenty to be mined, but that's just how it's done. But that's just not how it's done anymore. Yeah, I mentioned in that show that the Star Trek novels of the early 80s had a lot more creative freedom. I also don't think there's been the kickback with Star Trek that there has with Star Wars, in the sense that from the very beginning of Star Trek novel fiction, Roddenberry always said that these were not canon and could be contradicted at any time by uh, whatever appeared on television, movies or TV or whatever. And indeed, they were frequently contradicted. However, for me... The novels did a much better meeting of Picard and Kirk than the films ever did. And William Shatner's first trilogy of novels is supremely brilliant Star Trek. Much better uh, than Generations. Ashes of Eden really should have been a Star Trek 7. And in the case of the novels, the novel for Rascal, not Rascals, Relics, where Scotty came back to the Enterprise D, actually has him interacting with the crew of the TV era, something they could not have afforded to do on television at the time. So for stuff like that, it's really good. We should also mention at this point the sad recent passing of writer Terence Dix. Terence Dix wrote more of the Doctor Who Target novels than anyone else and is correctly attributed with keeping the fandom interested in Doctors that we may not have seen, may have been before we were even born, like in my case, Pertwee, Troughton and, and Hartnell, all of whom I've still read more novels of than I've actually seen television adventures, although I am fixing that with, with John Pertwee, who is really growing on me as a Doctor. Terence Dix was always a joy, always a presence whenever he showed up on the, um, the special features on the DVDs or on the audio commentaries. Always has such wonderful, lovely stories. Always just a, one of those guys who rolled his sleeves up and got on with the job. And always very self-effacing. You know, he had a sense of humour about this stuff, even though he took it seriously. And in, in, in terms of the War Games, the final story in Patrick Troughton's era, he and co-writer Malcolm Hulk created the mythology of the Doctor, though, that he's still been mined to this day. Um... Dix contributed greatly to the novelizations of Doctor Who and the Doctor Who mythology generally, and he will be missed, but he's still on all those special features, and every time I now discover a new DVD that has Dix on it, because he was essentially the story editor throughout the entire John Pertwee era, uh, I, will, I will treasure him, 
because he was a joy and by all accounts a lovely man and always entertaining to watch. So rest easy, Sir Terence. Nathaniel continues, The Greatest American Hero. This was a show I heard about from the very first time because of a gag in an episode of Family Guy, back when it was a cheeky as opposed to be mean-spirited, and I wondered what the hell are they even referencing? And I honestly wish that you don't really know how to properly use these powers was done as a long-term premise rather than early character more often. It's so often glossed over, but what if the hero never truly masters what they can do? I like that element of basically rolling the dice that they will just try and get the result they want. I got what you meant about the spin-off's lead being too peppy, though. Even in the audio clips, I was rolling my eyes so hard on the highway it was probably considered distracted driving. I think that's everything, but probably not. But we'll leave it here. Keep up the great work. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne, Council of Geeks. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. Always a joy. And again, he didn't insert a plug. <clears throat> Excuse the gag. Uh, so I will mention Council of Geeks over on YouTube. Go and watch them. Always fun. Our next email is from Alistair Jakes, Battlestar Galactica, and why I don't like Shatner. Hmm. Hi, Andrew. Saw short email this time, hopefully. I have watched and loved Blake 7, Farscape, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5 and Doctor Who. So I should like Battlestar Galactica and I did try to watch the reimagined series. What I saw of it did showcase why everyone loves it. Edward James Olmos is amazing. Most of the cast is. I didn't think I could watch it now for the same reason I gave up watching Star Trek Discovery. There's enough actual terror in the world without watching a TV show all about living in a time of war with few resources. That's not why I stopped watching it, though. I'm an atheist. I respect that others believe and I think differently, but that's just my perspective. That perspective does colour how I see media, though. My favourite Indiana Jones film is The Fourth, because that is how much I dislike religion is real plots. Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5 and Farscape each have their share of godlike entities, but there's enough reference in them being sufficiently advanced aliens that I can excuse it. Even fantasy works like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones and the Elder Scrolls games have deities, and I can excuse that as sufficiently advanced science, because people who use bows and arrows can't be expected to know about genetics and quantum mechanics. Battlestar Galactica Reimagined, though, is about a convoy of alien ships from a civilization that colonized multiple worlds and developed massively advanced AI. So when I watched an episode that began with Baltar stating he was an atheist and ended with him declaring himself a god, I checked out. My dispension of disbelief can take a lot, but that destroyed it. The concept of faith in science fiction is, is a fascinating one. Star Trek, by and large, is very atheist. Gene Roddenberry actually told Jonathan Frakes on the set that he considered everybody in Star Trek's future to be a disbeliever. That said, there are references to God and Christianity throughout all of the original Star Trek. Babylon 5, I think, handled religion remarkably well. I think it was remarkably fur and even-handed to the concept of religion. I have no problem with the concept of faith in my fiction. I personally am not of the opinion there is a higher power. But, you know, if there is, I like to think I'll get to the pearly gates and he'll go, hmm, and I'll go, well, I was a decent enough person, wasn't I? And if he's a nice enough guy, he'll go, yeah, all right, come on then. Which is probably just me covering my back, I freely admit. But I, you know, I don't have any problem with it in my fiction, just as I don't have any problem with it in real life. Speaking of faith in something being destroyed, let's talk about Shatner. Before I begin, I want to make it clear I have no problem with people liking the character of Kirk. The actor is not the character. 
Besides, I like the films with Chris Pine as Kirk, so I can substitute the actor I like if and when I watch the original series. I do not like William Shatner, though. I am autistic, so how autistic people is treated is very important to me. William Shatner has done a good deal to help the charity called Autism Speaks, a charity that actual autistic people hate because it speaks of curing the autistic. Autism is a part of who I am. You cannot strip it out of me without fundamentally changing my person. That's even setting aside that at least 90% of supposed autism cures are just scams that actually hurt the people they are supposed to be helping. There are charities that try to help autistic people with actual autistic people approve of, but Autism Speaks isn't one of them. William Shatner is thus not someone I can ever give praise to. He's too dangerous. Anyway, love your podcast. Keep up the good work, Alistair Jakes. This plays into the whole art and artist thing, doesn't it? Now, Nathaniel, who I just mentioned, uh, who just sent an email into the show, recently had a Twitter discussion about this. There's a whole manner of, of topics about it. Um, Nick Cave recently did a blog about it. Somebody wrote to Nick Cave asking, you know, does Morrissey's coming out as with his ultra right-wing beliefs about Britain first, does that affect your love of the Smiths? And Nick Cave replied with, no, it doesn't. Because Nick Cave is of the opinion that once the art is out there, it does not belong to the artists. It belongs to you, the listener. And it resonated with me in a particular way because I love the Smiths. I adore the Smiths. I adored the Smiths in high school. I adore the Smiths now. I do not find the Smiths miserable. I find them hysterically funny. It helps, I think, that I've never been a particular fan of Morrissey solo work. Every now and again, he put out a single that I quite liked, like First of the Gang to Die or Every Day is Like Sunday. But for the most part, I could take a leave Morrissey as a solo artist. So the Smiths exist as this singular work completely divorced from the people who produced it and at that level i can thoroughly enjoy and still love the smiths irrespective of what i think about what morrissey's been saying recently by contrast there's a certain artist for dc comics who his twitter presence and his his youtube presence have effectively spoiled my enjoyment of his art and that kind of contradicts my stance that you can, for a lot of a lot of time, separate the art from the artist. Because in the case of something like Star Trek, William Shatner did not produce Star Trek all on his own. William, William Shatner was a small part of the cog that was the wheels that were Star Trek. Yes, he's the main actor in the show. And as an actor, I find him supremely entertaining in everything I've ever seen him in. Except maybe TJ Hooker. I don't know what he's like as a person. If you have a problem with him because of his support of that charity, that's perfectly acceptable to me. I do not enforce my personal beliefs on other people. But again, this goes into can you separate art from artist? And I accept that there are no easy answers to this. There are no right answers to this. Everyone must do what they personally feel is right. Finally tonight, we've got Daniel Doherty emailing in with Star Trek in across the DC universe, hailing frequencies open and Hello, Daniel. Talk about perfect timing. As I'm writing this, I'm currently on a Star Trek kick. And just when I was thinking about digging out my back issues of DC Star Trek to reread, you release an episode of The Palace about the 20th anniversary issue. It's like you plan this shit. It is, isn't it? And it's, it's like I released that episode near to September 8th. So that it almost came out on the 53rd anniversary. It's like I planned this crap, which I don't. 
Over the years, I've read an awful lot of Trek comics from Gold Key, which I do own a fair amount of, thanks to my dad, the Power Records material to completely different runs from Marvel, and even the current IDW books, all pale in comparison to the magnificence that is DC Star Trek. I started reading DC Star Trek with Volume 2, Issue 49. I didn't always read it on a consistent basis, but when I would pick up a random issue here and there, it was always appreciated. When these books were originally coming out, it was a dark time for me as a Star Trek fan. Around 93, 94, Next Generation was the biggest show in syndication, and whilst there was no shortage of next-gen merchandise on the shelves, classic Trek merch was few and far between. I specifically remember going to the toy department of stores like Bradley's and Ames, both of which no longer exist, and being annoyed by the lack of classic Trek stuff. All I wanted was a decent original series Trek toy, and I kept getting next generation crap shoved down my throat. I wanted original series Phaser, I'd get the next gen version. I wanted the original TV and movie versions of the Enterprise, I got stuck with Enterprise D. Sorry, I don't mean to keep ranting about next generation, but there's a reason I have a chip on my shoulder regarding TNG and all the other Trek spin-offs. Growing up in the 90s, it felt like my favourite version of Star Trek was always being put out of reach in favour of all these other versions I didn't really care for. And that's why DC Star Trek was so special for me. If nothing else, I could always count on that comic to give me the classic Trek fix I needed. I wish I could gush some more about DC Star Trek goodness, but I've rambled enough. Maybe I'll get another opportunity if you decide to cover any more DC Trek. Until next time, may your shuttlecraft never crash land on a planet of giants and you always make sure to keep a phaser ready at your side. Live long and prosper. Sincerely, Dan Doherty. P.S. I brought it up in an earlier email, but have you ever looked at Marvel's second attempt at making Trek comics from the late 90s? There was some interesting stuff like the short-lived Untold Voyages, which took place between Star Trek The Motion Picture and Wrath of Khan, and a Mirror Mirror one-shot that takes place immediately after the events of the original episode, written by Tom DeFalco and drawn by Mark Bagley. I have not read Untold Voyages. I read Early Voyages because I was interested in Captain Pike, but that Untold Voyages... But that... Untold Voyages sounds interesting, but I'm very interested in the Tom DeFalco Mark Bagley one. So uh, let me know what issue that is, uh, and I'll see if I can track it down. Or if anyone wants to send it me, that'd be great. Uh, that would be the dog. So that's clearly time to call this show to an end. Baxter! Uh, email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you want to join Daniel, Alistair and Nathaniel in corresponding with me. Or hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Uh, and I will be back. <laughs> I'll be back real soon and everything's going to be fine. I'll go and walk the dog. Catch you later. ta -ra.